I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. I don't know about you, but when I look around at all of what's going on around us right now, sometimes I'm just tempted to say, what hope is there? I mean, we have this virus that has just turned the world upside down, but that's not really even the worst of it. Even worse, evil people are taking advantage of the chaos for their own wicked ends. And we've got death in the streets, and that would be bad in itself. But again, there are wicked people taking advantage of tragedy for their own wicked ends. And we have wicked agendas being enacted in the education systems of our country and wicked messages being broadcast by the entertainment industry in ways we've never really seen before. Supreme Court decisions coming down that just don't make any rational sense and that will make it increasingly hard to live biblically in this culture. The very government that God designed to protect innocent life is defending the murder of the innocent. I mean, I could go on and on. And the natural question that arrives for Christians living in a post-Christian culture is, what are we to do? What are we who are attempting to live righteously to do? How can we live lives of praise and glory to the Lord in the midst of all of this wickedness? That's the question I'd like to address in this episode. And I would like to address it from one of the best places in Scripture that we could go to address this problem, and that is the book of Psalms. But before we do that, I want to highlight one psalm paraphrase that you should know. It's a psalm paraphrase by Isaac Watts. Watts is probably more known for his hymns and for his psalm paraphrases that Christianize the psalm and really turn them into hymns using the psalm as a launching point. But his paraphrase of Psalm 1 is actually a close paraphrase to the psalm itself. We're going to look at this psalm in just a moment, but I would like to recommend this psalm paraphrase to you. Watts' first stanza reads, That man is blessed who, fearing God from sin, restrains his feet, who will not stand with wicked men, who shuns the scorner's seat. He continues, Yea, blessed is he who makes God's law his portion and delight, and meditates upon that law with gladness day and night. That man is nourished like a tree set by the river's side. Its leaf is green, its fruit is sure, and thus his work abides. The wicked, like the driven chaff, are swept from off the land. They shall not gather with the just, nor in the judgment stand. The Lord will guard the righteous well. Their way to him is known, the way of sinners far from God, shall surely be o'erthrown. So this is a wonderful setting of that first psalm, and I highly recommend it to you. And you can visit classichymns.org and download this psalm. The book of Psalms in Hebrew was originally called Tehillim, which simply means praises, and that probably doesn't surprise you. We often associate the psalms with praise. We expect to find expressions of praise like hallelujah, the word that simply means praise the Lord. However, the book was called praises, not actually because the book is just a collection of expressions of praise. In fact, while there are mentions of praise and commitments to praise the Lord throughout the Psalter, that key word, hallelujah, does not appear in the entire collection until Psalm 104. The last 50 psalms or so are filled with expressions of hallelujah, but not until Psalm 104. 
much of the Psalter is actually not praise. And so the question is, why would the whole book be called praises if most of the Psalms are not praises? And you don't even find an emphasis of praise until the very end. Well, answering this question, I think, shows us how this book can be so helpful for we who are trying to praise the Lord in the midst of a wicked world. We have to remember what we have here in the book of Psalms. Each psalm is an individual song written by various authors like David and Moses and Solomon and Asaph and others, but this is not just a loosely connected collection of songs. Someone didn't just decide to collect as many songs as he could and group them together. Someone did collect these and group them together, probably during or just after the Babylonian exile. It could have been someone like Ezra or a group of scribes. And you probably know that there are actually five books in the Psalter. And the Psalms were arranged intentionally into those five books with a particular purpose in mind. It's really very similar to the hymnal that we publish through Religious Affections, Hymns to the Living God. Our hymnal contains hymns that span different times and languages and written by different authors. But when we collected these hymns and put them in the hymnal, we didn't just put them in there randomly. There is a thematic order to the arrangement of our hymnal. The hymns follow the liturgical order of Christian worship. The same is true with the Psalter. The editor or editors arranged these psalms in a particular order for a particular purpose. And there are all sorts of clues that indicate this kind of deliberate ordering that I won't get into. But suffice it to say that while it's not necessarily clear how every single psalm fits into the order, it is clear that there is an order and the basic underlying purpose beneath that order is clear. And actually, The structural order of the Psalms is even more deliberate than even our hymnal because the way it is ordered is actually intended to teach us something. Even more than that, the order of the Psalms is supposed to form us in particular ways. And one of the clearest evidences of this order and its purpose is what I've already mentioned, and that is the fact that emphasis on praise does not appear until the very end of this book of praises. In fact, the book actually starts pretty dark, and that darkness continues with occasional glimpses of light through much of the first hundred psalms. For example, listen to the opening words of Psalm 3. It says, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. So here is a book called Praises, and after a couple of introductory psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, it begins with, O Lord, how many are my foes? And then listen to the beginning of Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And then listen to Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now now it's not even any more about foes around me. It's about God's anger against my own sin. This is dark. Psalm 7. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. That doesn't sound like praises. 
In fact, not only does the subject of praise not really come into focus until the end of the book of Psalms, the presence of the wicked appears over and over again. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. You actually probably have, but if you're like most people, you tend to skip over the sections of Psalms that talk about the wicked, don't you? You get to the parts that talk about the Edomites and the Amorites and the foes and the enemies, and we just sort of glide through those sections looking for the stuff about shepherds and singing and praise. So what's going on here? Well, it is exactly this organizational structure that makes the book of Psalms so beneficial for God's people because the book is arranged to portray the goal of praising the Lord in the midst of enemies around us and sin within us. The book helps us to understand how this is even possible, and it actually forms this within us through its arrangement and the poetic expressions throughout the book. I want to expand more on that subject in just a moment, but first I want to recommend a book about the Psalms that helpfully articulates this sort of emphasis. It's a book called Singing the Songs of Jesus by Michael Lefebvre published in 2010 by Christian Focus. Here is his thesis. He says, In the Psalms, praise is the expected outcome, but meditation is the underlying activity which we undertake in psalm singing. Unlike modern church songs, which are primarily about getting right to the point and declaring praise, the psalms are designed to help people who don't always feel like praising Begin by meditating on the mess the world is in, and only through a full and robust process of meditation to come out with praise. That's exactly what I've been talking about, and that's really one of the greatest helps of this book. The author wants us to, as the title says, sing the songs that Jesus sang. Jesus sang the Psalms. The Psalms were given to us for a particular purpose, and one of the core purposes is to help us learn how to praise in the midst of a wicked world. He later says, What I am describing here is certainly no new discovery, but it involves a fundamentally different heart action in our hymnody than the contemporary worship movement represents. It is thus a use of the Psalms that we need to consciously hang on to amidst contrary assumptions through today's church, where the expectation is that songs simply declare praise. And that's exactly what I'm trying to emphasize. Our singing is not just an expression of praise. What the Psalms model for us and what the Psalms do for us is they help to actually form praise within us in the midst of a dark and wicked world. We are living in what potentially could be very discouraging times for Christians seeking to live lives that glorify God. But as I've pointed out, the book of Psalms has been structured to help us endure through these very kinds of times. Much of the book focuses on dark times of discouragement, and then through its structure and through its poetry, the Psalms form us into people who can praise the Lord in the midst of wickedness around us and sin within us. The very first Psalm introduces this idea and forecasts the trajectory of the entire book of Psalms. The first word of the Psalm captures well our desire, blessedness. 
To be blessed literally means a state of well-being. It means to flourish, to prosper. It's what we might call the good life. And that's what we want, isn't it? That's what everyone wants. We want to flourish. When we do what's right, we want the result to be prosperity. And it's not prosperity apart from God. No, we recognize that this prosperity comes from him and we want to praise him for it. That's truly our goal. We want to be able to freely praise God with our lips and our lives because of the rich and full and blessed life that he's given us. In fact, Psalm 1 paints a picturesque image of this sort of blessedness in verse 3 when it says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And clearly, this introductory psalm is going to help us understand how to attain this sort of blessedness. It says, Blessed is the man who... The psalm is going to tell us the way to blessedness, the way to the state of well-being. And in fact, Psalm 1 introduces the fact that the entire Psalter is designed to unfold that way to blessedness. The entire book of Psalms is designed to teach us what traveling along the way to blessedness will be like for a righteous person. But interestingly, this instruction for how to be blessed begins with three negatives. But based on what we've already seen, that shouldn't surprise us because the negatives are directly related to the reality of wicked people around us. The psalm says, don't walk in the counsel of people like that. Don't stand in the way of sinners. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers. In other words, if you choose to walk down the way of the righteous, you're going to very quickly encounter opposition. You're going to find people who counsel you to go the other way who have a different idea of the right way toward blessedness. And it's not like you come to a fork in the road and one way is the true way to blessedness and the other way is a false way and you've got wicked people counseling you to take the wrong way and as long as you take the right way, you'll leave those wicked people behind and never have to deal with them again. No, that's the wrong picture. It's actually like this. You're walking down the way toward destruction with hundreds of other people walking the same direction. And if you choose the righteous path, you have to actually turn completely around and push against the current along the way toward blessedness. In fact, this contrast between the blessed person and the wicked person is a structural framework that continues through the entire Psalter because it is a reality that will always exist throughout the history of humankind. There have been and always will be, between the fall and the coming of Christ, two groups of people, the righteous and the wicked. They're here in this psalm, and they're present in most of the Psalter. If you pay attention as you read through any psalm, the wicked are there. I mean, just the basic root of the Hebrew word for wicked appears 90 times in the psalms. And that doesn't even include other synonyms like sinners and scoffers and enemies and foes and evil and on and on. In fact, fewer than 30 psalms don't mention these kinds of people. They are everywhere. And not only that, they're prospering. You see this kind of thing over and over again in the Psalms, and we experience it all the time. In fact, if you look at Psalm 10, you read this, For the wicked boasts of his desire of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. 
I mean, what do we make of that? Psalm 1 says that righteous people will prosper, but here the wicked are prospering. And that's what we're experiencing today, isn't it? The wicked are gaining all the influence. The wicked control the entertainment industry and the media. The wicked rise to prominence in government. The wicked are everywhere. They are prospering. And the book of Psalms is structured to portray that because it is an unavoidable reality. And so we should not be surprised when wicked people do wicked things around us. They've been here since Cain, and they will be here until the end. We often try to avoid that reality. We often try to escape it, to ignore it. We pretend the wicked aren't here. We tend to skip over those passages about wickedness in the Psalms. Those are just David's enemies. I mean, this is what Isaac Watts essentially did. I love Watts's hymns, and I love his psalm paraphrases, and I think he did a great job with Psalm 1, as I read a moment ago. But when he paraphrased the psalms, Watts typically just glossed over any references to the wicked as if they don't really have any relevance for Christians today. But the prevalence of the wicked in the psalms is deliberate. The Psalter is structured so that as you progress through the book, you never get away from these people. If you choose to walk on the path of righteousness toward blessing, these people will always be with you. When you see people twisting facts to promote their own evil agenda, you should just recognize there they are. There's the wicked. When you see murder and injustice and immorality and literally unspeakable forms of filth right there out in the public where everyone can see them, you should recognize there they are. There's the reality that Psalm 1 painted. And there's the reality that is present in the entire book. And this is exactly why we need the Psalms, why we need to sing the Psalms. The Psalms are designed to show us this reality, to form this reality within us, and to teach us through the entire structure of the book and through the poetry presented in the book, the Psalms are intended to teach us how we can live lives of blessedness, lives in which we glorify God, in which we praise Him with our lips and with our actions, in the midst of wickedness, not ignoring the wickedness, but praising the Lord right there in the middle of it. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services, and if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org, and for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Mm-hmm.